0: Our mission, we're about helping people find and follow Jesus. We want every man, woman, and child to hear the good news about what Christ has done for us. We're going to begin a new series today, and I'm calling this series Because of Bethlehem. If you would, open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 are going to be the primary source for this message this morning. A sermon I'm calling God Has Come to Earth. But let me ask you something. Does it feel like Christmas? Nobody. Okay. Nobody answered that one. I know my wife and I were up late last night trying to find the gifts for this kid and that kid and the different grandparents and all these people we're trying to find gifts for. But Christmas isn't about gifts. It's about Jesus. But this, uh, it should feel like Christmas, after all, the, the decoration committee made this the stage look nice, and all around the sanctuary, we had the parade of lights, and so thank you for everyone that took part in the parade, and the, the floats, and the hot chocolate, thank you for that, but it kind of feels like Christmas is already here to me. And so that's why I'm launching this, this series, and then we're gonna, I'm going to preach this series through the entire, Lord willing, the entire month of December and into, just a little bit into January, and I'm calling this series, Because of Bethlehem. Did you know something spectacular happened in a little town called Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? Because what happened is, God became a man. God came in human form. Which is the message for today that that God has come to earth. People say all the time, well, if God is real, if there's really God in heaven, why doesn't he reveal himself to us? He did. His name is Jesus. Jesus is when God came for us. And it happened in a little town of Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem. And that's why I'm calling this series, Because of Bethlehem. So over the next four weeks... A little bit longer. Lord willing, uh, as my plan, my hope, my desire, as best as I can, to unpack some, some amazing biblical truths to you. And so today we're going to be talking about how God has come to earth. Lord willing, next week, a message I'm calling Grace has Come, Grace has Appeared. On Christmas Day, um, it's going to be about how hope has arrived. And then one more uh, sermon after that about how a gift has been given. And each week, I I hope to share with you some biblical truth that maybe you didn't know, or maybe if you already did know what we're talking about, to remind us again because this truth is so amazing. How could we not talk about it over and over and over again? So, with that, let's pick up our Bibles Old Testament, Book of Isaiah, chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. The scripture says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's my first point for us this morning, point number one, God came to earth. I've been accused of saying that too much in my preaching about how God has come, his name is Jesus, and the reason why I harp on this so much is because, you know, I grew up in America, I grew up celebrating Christmas, I grew up celebrating Easter, but I didn't understand the deity of Christ, I didn't understand it all, when, when the, the scales fell from my eyes, I mean, it was absolutely life-changing, You know this this text in Isaiah. I I knew we've used this. I've used this previously for Christmas, and so I went back. and It was Christmas of twenty twenty that we spent four weeks looking at every one of those amazing, earth shattering titles that Isaiah says is this this coming Savior, this God that created us that the created the image and He created us in His in His own image. At the very perfect time, He came for us. And I want you to consider that God came in an unexpected way. He came as a baby. He didn't come as a warrior. He didn't come as a mighty king, not with the pomp and flair and and all the the hoopla that we would think that if God's going to come, he's going to come. But he came as a baby. Why in the world did God come as a baby? The full manifold wisdom of why that is true. I can't wrap my brain around. I'm not a smart enough man, but he did come as a baby. I mean, think about all the different ways that God could manifest himself if he chose to. But yet he chose a baby. Why do we love babies so much? Because one, babies are awesome. But also because our Savior, he came as a baby. So the next time you look at a baby, it should remind us of Jesus and how he came for us. Because if we were to imagine, if we were to script or write the way that God would come for us, there isn't one of us here that would... would Choose so that God would come as a baby. I'm sure if we were to script it, it would be with so much more flare and maybe fireworks and fire and lightning. And that's what would happen. But yet the creator God of the universe, He chose to come as a baby in the little town of Bethlehem. God chose the humble manger scene. God chose to wrap Himself in flesh and to walk in earthly sandals. But before He walked in sandals, He was laid in a manger. Knowing that all he would go through, he knew that he would experience pain and and torture and sorrow and rejection and betrayal. He knew all this and eventually his own death. 700 years before the star guided the Magi to the Messiah's birthplace, the prophet Isaiah said that there's this man that's going to absolutely change history. Because verse 6 says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given. And that son is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But don't miss the fact that the birth of of the God-man was totally unexpected. It should have been expected, but people didn't understand it. They, They didn't understand the way he would come and why he would come. Listen to why I say it was unexpected. Back up in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1. The Word of God says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So if you would have been alive during Isaiah's time when he penned those words, this chapter, you know, you got to consider also he's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That verses 6 and 7, Isaiah would be totally shocking to you. Here's why. Because if God is going to do something huge, I would say him coming in the flesh is absolutely huge. We would think that it would be in the divine headquarters, you know, Jerusalem, the city of David, because that's where the temple is located. If anything of the most major spiritual religious significance that ever happened, we would think for absolutely certain it's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. But you would be wrong. Just like everybody else was. The Messiah, the Savior, the King of the world, Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem and grew up in the little town of Nazareth. Now consider this, Nazareth is a podunk, nothing of a town when you consider it. Theologians suggest that the town of Nazareth, probably when the time when Jesus was growing up was a town of about 400. Can you think of a town of about 400? I think many of us can and consider that there would be a young boy grow up in that town and say, I am the savior of the world. That'd be tough to believe, right? But the prophet Isaiah, he mentions the tribe of Zebulun and Naphtali here. They were uh, both tribes of Israel in the northern part, in the outskirts of Israel. There's 12 tribes of Israel, and Naphtali and Zebulun are two of them. But Isaiah goes on to say, but in the latter times he has made glorious the ways of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations, that is, it literally means Galilee of the Gentiles. It's pa- talking about this multi-ethnic region. And look what he says next in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. That phrase deep darkness, it could be literally translated the, the shadow of death. And maybe you haven't been going to church for a long time, but if you have, or maybe you've just been to a number of funerals, you were familiar with that phrase, shadow of death, because King David spoke about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But the people during Isaiah's time, they were living in the shadow, this death shadow. But yet Isaiah says that there's this, this grace of God, this light that's gonna shine because the light is shown upon him. Isaiah's prophesying about the coming savior, how he is the light. That's what Isaiah is trying to tell us. Listen to how the apostle Paul explains it in the New Testament. Then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse four and six. The word of God says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So very clearly there, Paul is saying that that Jesus is is the image of God. He is the glory of God. He is the light of the gospel in verse six. For God who has said, let the light shine out of darkness has shown in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that Satan is keeping people from seeing. Is keeping people in the shadow of death. His goal is to keep unbelievers from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Because there is the spiritual light, the spiritual light that shines. It's the gospel, the light of the glory of Christ. You see, I want everybody to know that if you are to be saved, you must see this light by faith. That's how you get saved. But here's my point. God came to the earth and he came to bring salvation to all people. Jews, Gentiles, everybody is saved, saved the same way we're saved through faith. And how did he come? He didn't come in comfort. He was born as he is laid in this trough where animals would come to eat. He was not born to a middle class family. He was born into poverty. He wasn't born with heads of state around his the bedside. No, there was there was the first to hear the news were the shepherds. And if you don't know this, you should know this, but shepherds were the outcasts in that society. They were the ones that were, that were considered unclean and not allowed to go into the temple. So if you've ever felt, felt like an outcast, you're in good company because the very first to hear the news of the coming Savior were the outcasts. And they came and they worshiped the baby Jesus as God. And Jesus was not born and raised in a big city like Jerusalem, like we would expect no in the small rural town in Galilee. That's where God did the unimaginable. He did what the world couldn't understand and the way he came. Because in the midst of obscurity laid the most influential man that history would ever see. In the humble manger trough, there laid the God man. And around that cradle, that, that manger, was the glory and very few knew it and hardly anybody could understand it. And it's still difficult for me to wrap my, my head around all these years later, but it's true that God would come, that he would leave heaven, that place of perfection that we all dream about and we daydream of what it's going to be like when we finally get there. Well, he left there to come to this place for us. Here's my second point for us this morning. Point number two, God became a man. I say God became a man, and that's true, but first he became a baby. Because Isaiah says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given. I want to notice that that Isaiah didn't say that a son is created. That's not what he said. He didn't say that because Jesus is not a created being. He is God, the second person, the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, the God-man. So he has dual natures, both divine and human at the same time so many of the cults will try to teach you that that Jesus is the son of god created by god the father and they'll go on to say that that, uh, this, that Jesus the son of god he's the son of god like an earthly father has an earthly son no that's that's not that's not true that is utter heresy there's nothing, true under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun like Solomon says because that heresy goes all the way back to a man by the name of Arius who taught that during the 3rd and 4th century and then that teaching was condemned as utter heresy by the Council of Nicaea in 352 A.D. Listen to what Isaiah says earlier in chapter 7 verse 14. He says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you're thinking, I need a sign... I need a sign to know that God is real, that God has come. What's going to be the sign? Well, Isaiah tells us, "Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." I just love how Isaiah says, seven centuries before Jesus would come. Hey, you want a sign? Look for the pregnant virgin. That sounds like that's, that's an oxymoron right there. A pregnant virgin—that doesn't make sense. That's the sign. The baby inside the pregnant virgin shall be Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel means God with us. You need a sign that that Jesus is divine. Look no further than the virgin birth. You see, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, and was adopted by his earthly father, Joseph. You see, the virgin birth, that's one of the things that Christians sometimes just kind of gloss over. We just skip over that because we don't really understand that, or we don't want to make a big deal of that. That is a huge deal. That is a critical component of the Christian faith. Because if Jesus was not born of a virgin, that means he has an earthly father. And if Jesus has an earthly father, that means he has a sin nature like you and I. And if he has a sin nature like you and I, that disqualifies him from being the perfect substitute on the cross. Because he would not have died sinless. But fortunately for us, Jesus was born of a virgin. He did die sinless. You see, if you give on the virgin birth, if you cave in, all of Christianity comes crumbling down like a deck of cards. Because if Jesus was not conceived in the whole, in the, by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, then his biological father was Joseph, and he was a sinner, and if he's a sinner, he's just like you and I, and he would not atone for my sins or your sins. But the fact that he was supernaturally conceived in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, that means he is fully God. But yet he's also fully man. And that is so important because Jesus was not God because he's virgin born. He's virgin born because he is God. Larry King, famous TV radio host, interviewer, was once asked if he could interview anybody ever in the history of time, who would he choose to interview? And Larry King said he would interview Jesus Christ. He goes on to say the question he would like to ask Jesus is if he is indeed virgin born. King added, he said, quote, the answer to that question would define history to me. Even Larry King understands that the the, the virgin birth is an absolute game changer to say the least. Listen to how the apostle Paul explains it to the church in in Galatians. Listen to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Why did Jesus come? Why was he born of a virgin? So he'd be sinless, so we could be adopted into the family of God by his grace. Paul Harvey, famous, another TV, excuse me, radio host from way, way back when he tells a story of a family that had a a very, tradition on Christmas Eve and tradition goes that the mother would gather the children and she would go to the church for the Christmas Eve service. I kind of picture it like the one we're going to have here in a few days. And the mother and the children would go, but the father would stay home. You know, he grew up in church as a, as a young boy, but didn't believe all that God becoming a man stuff that we celebrate at Christmas time. And so he would allow his family to go and he would stay home and sit in a chair and read the paper. So there came the time the family left, the mother and children, they left for church. And the father sat down in his chair, pulled out the paper and began to read the paper in front of a big roaring fire. And about that time, he hears this tapping at the window. There's a tap in the window, and he gets up to see what's going on, and there's a bird that's continuing to fly into the window because it's, it's snowy and cold, and this bird's trying to get out of the cold and get into the warmth of the house, and, house and this father had compassion on the bird. And he goes outside, and he tries to, to catch the bird, to bring it inside, but it only frighten the bird, and he's flying into the window even harder and harder, and the, more, the harder the husband tried to capture the bird, the, the worse it got because the bird fell into the snow below the below the window and and then only as he tried to reach into the bush to get it, the the bird frantically would jump into the thorns and the thickets and and injure itself and eventually the the man became frustrated and he and he screamed out in frustration he said stupid bird doesn't he understand i'm trying to save him i'm not trying to hurt him and then he had a thought he said if i could only become a bird i could communicate with this bird he can understand that i'm not here to hurt him i'm here to save him The story goes about that time he heard the church bells ring, as it did on the hour. And the man realized what he he was doing, that God had come for him. Instead, the man fell into the snow, and he began to to cry out. And he said, if only I've known, if only I've known. He recognized what God had done for him. Because in an attempt for him to rescue this bird, he realized that God had done for all of mankind. That Jesus came to the earth with one purpose, to die for the sins of the world, to redeem us back from the captivity of sin. You see, the awesomeness and the grandness of Christianity really hinges on three major events, the cradle, the cross, and the empty tomb. At this time of year, it's so easy for us to to focus, to to really centralize on, on the baby, the sweet little tender baby, and pause at the manger scene and everything that was happening there. Because at Christmas, it's so easy to remember the cradle, but then forget about the cross. Forget about the empty tomb. But I don't want you to lose sight of the big picture. The God-man, he was born to die. He was born to die so that you and I, we might live. You see, Jesus was born and died. And three days later, he came back from the grave so that we could have eternal life. And that's why Isaiah says, to us, a son is given. You see, God gave the greatest gift that will ever be given. That was the gift of his son. Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship, if you listen to radio much, I'm sure you've heard him. But years ago, he lost his own son in a fatal motorcycle crash. Greg Laurie says this, he says, quote, I personally know the pain of losing a child. And I think for a parent, there is no greater pain than this. God knows all about this. That he knows what it's like to lose a child. We talk about the sacrifice of Jesus and justly so. As he came to the earth laid aside his privileges of deity. And involuntarily went to the cross and died for the sins of the world. But let's, let us not forget the sacrifice of the father who watched his son enter the world. You see the father. He watched as the son entered the world knowing the scourging that would come at the hands of evil men. He, he knew about the cross of Calvary where his son would be crucified. He knew all of this, and yet he still allowed the son to go. As a father, I love my kids. I can't honestly say I'd allow them to die for anybody or even be harmed for anybody. I wouldn't do that. And, and sinners that would reject the gift. The father knew that, that sinners would reject this gift. He knew that they would literally spit in the face of his son before they murdered him. And yet he still allowed his son to go. I wouldn't allow my children to do that for anybody. But aren't we so glad that the, the God the father has an unimaginable level of love for lost sinners like us? He, in fact, gave the greatest gift would ever be given, the gift of his one and only Son. And please consider that the the very first Christmas gift was not from the Magi, was not gifts of gold, frankincense, of myrrh. No, the first gift was a gift from the Father's heart as he gave his one and only Son. And he did that so we could have eternal life. Because he wants us to be with him for all eternity. God the Father did the unimaginable when he gave God the Son for sinners. God went to the greatest length so we didn't have to be separated from him. You see, God the Father crushed God the Son with my filth and your filth and our sins and our shame so that we could be redeemed back to him. Here's point number three this morning. Point number three, God came to rescue Have you ever considered that? God came on a rescue mission. Why did Jesus come to rescue us from our sins? Look in Isaiah chapter 6. Excuse me, chapter 9, verse 6. The second half. It says, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So those are the, the four names that Isaiah says Jesus will bear. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And every one of those Names are so magnificent because he's the source of wisdom and counsel and advice. He's the one that rescues us from our sins. He's the one that provides protection and he's the one that has ability to accomplish. us. But that one name, mighty God, that Jesus is the mighty God. That's what he wants us to see. Say the one that's coming, he is the mighty God. So let me ask you this question to you personally. Who is Jesus Christ? doesn't matter what anybody else says. What do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? Because there's a lot of people have a lot of answers to that question. Some of them, right? Most of them wrong. People say things like, well, Jesus was a good man. Jesus was a miracle worker. He was a moral teacher. He was a Jewish rabbi. He was a social and political revolutionary. Maybe even people say he was a prophet. But some people say, no, Christ was delusional. That he wasn't who he said he is. Or maybe your, your answer lines up more with Peter. What Peter said when he said that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Great Christian theologian C.S. Lewis about, said about this. Lewis said, quote, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make, for, make your, your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit in his face, kill him as a demon, or you can fall on your knees and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense of him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. It was Lewis that said that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. That's what Lewis said. Those are your three options. Others have said there's five options. I'm going to go through those real quick. Because some said that Jesus is legend. That he didn't really exist. He was just a fairy tale. He never walked the earth. But history doesn't allow that for an option. There is overwhelming evidence. There was a man. His name was Jesus. And he lived and ministered in Israel 2,000 years ago. And history says that he was murdered on a cross. Because he threatened the powers that be. And he also claimed to be God. So the idea that Jesus didn't exact, exist isn't a possibility. Or option number two, he was just a good man. That he was just a man, just a good man, no supernatural powers. But there were, there were historians during Jesus' day that were not Christians. Jewish historians that wrote and captured what, what Jesus said and did. That he rose from the grave. So so if, to follow the, the, the idea that he, is a, he rose from the grave, that he was something more than just a good man. Or some say he was a liar. He intentionally deceived his followers and pulled off the greatest hoax in the history of time. But I would say that the 10 of his 11 living disciples, they gave their life in the most horrific ways imaginable. I mean, maybe one man would give his life for a lie, possibly two, but there's no way that 10 guys would allow themselves to be brutally murdered for a lie. Option number four, that he's a lunatic, like Lewis said. He's insane, he's delusional, he's a total nutcase. There was a theologian by the name of Peter Kraft, he said about this quote, Jesus has in abundance precisely those three qualities which liars, lunatics most conspicuously lack. One, his practical wisdom, his ability to read human hearts, that's one. Two, his deep and winning love, his compassionate compassion. His ability to attract people and make them feel at home and forgiven. His authority. And above all, here's three. His ability to astonish. His unpredictability. His creativity. Liars and lunatics are dull and predictable. No one who knows the gospels and human beings can seriously entertain the possibility that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, a bad man. And here's option number five. This is the correct option. That Jesus is Lord. That he is exactly who he said he is. You know, Jesus said he was Lord. That he's God come in the flesh. And then he backed up this claim with the resurrection. That Jesus knew about the cross. He would go to the cross. And he said all along the way, three days later, I will rise from the grave. And he did it. I want you to know there's three things that makes Christianity utterly unique from all other faiths. One, Jesus is the only only one that claimed to be God. No major world religious leader or founder made the claim to be God. Buddha didn't say it. Muhammad never said that. Joseph Smith never said that. But Jesus did. Christianity either rises or falls on the deity of Christ. Here's the second thing that makes Christianity unique. Only Jesus Christ rose from the dead after dying from his followers. No religious leader claimed that he would conquer death. There's some that said they were going to. But none ever did. There was a lady by the name of Jemima Wilkinson. She is a lady that was born during the last part of the 18th century in Cumberland, Rhode Island. She was raised as a Quaker by her, children, or by her, I mean, by her parents early in life. But when she was 18, she contracted typhoid fever and she, she nearly died. When she recovered from the fever, she said she had gone to heaven and come back. And she said now that she was the very embodiment of Jesus Christ. She, uh, she promoted a very strict form of religion that was to hold to the Ten Commandments of sorts and then also total abstinence from sex. She told her followers that she's no longer Jemima Wilkinson, but she said her name was Public Universal Friend. She also said she's no longer male or female, just she didn't have a gender. We think that's a new concept today, but there's nothing new under the sun She told her followers that she was going to die, but upon her death, that she wasn't to be buried because she said three days later, she would come back from the grave. Well, guess what happened? On July 1st, 1819, she did die. And her followers did exactly as as she instructed. They laid her on a bed. Four days later, she was still dead. And so they went ahead and buried her. You can go see her grave. It's in Yates County, New York. Jesus Christ is the only one to conquer the grave. And here's the third thing that makes Christianity utterly unique. That only Christianity offers salvation by grace and not by works. You see, religion tells you how to please God, how to win his favor. But Christianity says you can't please God. You will never win his favor. You can only accept his grace. You see, it's only by his grace, unmerited, undeserved favor that can save you from your sins. If we could save ourselves, if our works, if our goodness, if our abilities, if the things we do or the things we don't do, if that could save us, then Jesus' death on the cross was in vain. Like I said earlier, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die just so we might live. Jesus sent Excuse me, that Jesus was sent on a rescue mission by the Father to rescue us from our sins. Because in Adam, we've all sinned. Every single one of us are born with a sin nature. And every single one of us has willfully chosen to sin, to do what's wrong, to sin against a holy God. So there's no one that's sinless, not one other than Jesus Christ. And I say that, that none of us is, 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 is perfect, but Jesus is. He's the only one that's perfect. He's the only one that is, that is sin, sinless enough to pay for our price of our sin on that cross. I also want to add in, there is no one so perfect that they need not be saved. But also, there is no one so sinless, uh, sinless that they need not to be saved. But here comes Jesus. He's perfect in every way. And he came on this divine rescue mission to die for imperfect people. That's you and that's me. Centuries ago, there was a Roman poet that was laid down some guidelines and rules for all these, these Roman um, writers these, um, that would write these, these tragedies of the day. And he was very critical of anybody that would, that would lay down a tragedy and bring in the supernatural to solve some plot that they had come up with. He said, quote, Do not bring God onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a God to solve it. There is a problem that God had to solve. And that is the problem of Sin. That we are all sinful. And we are all tragically separated from God because of our sin. That's why God stepped into the stage of history to solve the biggest problem. The most real problem. Uh, and That is man being separated from God because of our sin. And how did he solve it? By sending his son to come and die for our sins. Christmas is where we celebrate God coming. But please don't forget. Good Friday. When God died for all mankind. Read in Romans chapter five, verse eight. It says, but God shows his love for us that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. And then we celebrate Easter. That's the day when God rose from the grave. He resurrected, defeating sin and death. Did you know that the the mighty God who left heaven came to earth, who became the God man who rescues us from our sin? Do you know him? Because that's the reason of Christmas, of his coming. If you don't know him today, I'd encourage you to come to know him. And said that we're only a prayer away from God. There must come this moment where you recognize your sinfulness, you turn from your sin, and you turn to God in faith and you call on Him. The Bible says, "Whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved." It's not us being good people because we're not. It's about our faith in Christ. That there must come this moment where you recognize your sinfulness and you cry out to Him. For most, it's with a prayer to say, "Dear God, I'm a sinner." And the only way I can be saved is by you. Save me. I give you my life. I pray this in the precious name of Christ. Amen.